the Long Come Norwich podcast, a thoroughly festive football fantasia. This is our final humble offering before Christmas, and we find ourselves in rather special company, a former Norwich City chairman, no less, in Ed Balls. We'll discuss his unique combo of Carrow Road experiences, watching our beloveds as a punter, a politician, and a principal of the board. Only one place to start. We're at the top of the league at Christmas, Ed, and we've looked pretty good getting there, wouldn't you say? I think it's the best football I've seen us play for you know, a very long time. And I include in that the uh, the season when we went up last time. I think we've looked, the game management's been so good this season. And uh, no, I'm feeling really upbeat. John, I mean, it was a, a terrific performance. Again, we talked about it last time last time out, but the professionalism of knowing when to go up and down through the gears, that for me, that's still the biggest standout from from you know the last championship campaign yeah i'd agree with that i think you know the last championship campaign um i probably enjoyed the football a little bit more because it was it was slightly more hell for leather and it was definitely we're going to score more than you but we look way more streetwise now you know norwich city um don't look like any kind of slouches at any point during games short of potentially when when cardiff were bombarding us with with set pieces but even then um you know the likes of grant hanley at the back it just seems like we're a bit nastier and I like that. I think that it's it's a really good trait to have and one that we lacked in the Premier League. So now I think everything's looking up. Well, also, we, you've got to remember that we were slightly worried with with Gibson um, not being available um, and because and Zimmerman hadn't necessarily looked as comfortable as, as we would expect him to when he'd made a few substitute cameos later on in games. I think there's a couple of times where he'd come on um, and he'd actually been the guy that that it had been his marker that scored a couple of games in a row late late on in games it hadn't hadn't cost us any points but you know we weren't sure about that and actually fr- from the start I, I actually think he's um yeah he seems far more comfortable having started games um I think you were actually due to be at the game weren't you Ed um at the weekend I was it would have been my first game since Leicester um, wow. and you know that that great victory and uh we had tickets and I was going to go with my son and uh, daughter my brother and my dad was going to go as well. And then London went into tier three and uh, we couldn't travel down. So uh, couldn't go. I was, I was really disappointed. I've got kind of used to watching games on the computer at home and or on Sky when they're on. And uh, you can almost uh, adjust a little for the crowd not being there. But the idea of being back in the stadium. So, yeah, it was a blow. But look, we won 2-0. So what? Yeah, we we had a a couple of our our ACN family were there, um, and, and to be to be honest, a couple of them have been to to two games now, haven't they, John? And, I think they've been to all um, of them actually. Yeah, is there is it is it two, three, or it's three games, isn't it? I think that fans have been back. I think it's I think it's three. Yeah, mm. but the, the 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 what was what was good for me was the um the the, the players seemed to be responding to um to the fans in in a positive way. They seemed to be acknowledging it. Part of me was worried that actually they might they might be uh, loath to kind of clap or nod or, or just what I mean, like they almost might try to continue to block them out because they would, they had become so used after what, seven months of eight months, maybe since they last played in front of people at that Leicester game. Um, but it, it, there does seem to still be that interaction with the crowd. Um, I, I don't know, John, do, do you think that we're going to, as we're one of only three, I believe, clubs that are actually allowed to have fans now um, with the current state of place, us, Bristol and Bournemouth, I think? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I mean, that, it gives us a huge advantage. Into our hands. It absolutely plays into our hands. I think it it gives us a huge advantage because 
we saw it in the first game. I think it was the first, it was the actual day that, that supporters were allowed back. We played Luton away and it was undeniable. And you could hear the fans getting on the referees back. And I think they got a couple of decisions um, purely off the back that off the back of, you know, fans kind of getting onto the referee and, and it's almost, it's almost more powerful, I think, with 2000 fans in the stadium, because it's not, you know, kind of a, a wall of noise towards the referee. The referees and the and the linesmen can can actually hear what individual fans are saying. I think sometimes that's that's more impactful. So, yeah, I think it it makes a real difference. It definitely puts Norwich at an advantage, and you know we we shouldn't whinge about that um, at all. Um, it's just how long it goes on for, um, I guess, because you know ultimately with with the way things are, um, you'd have to think that that we're going to be up the tiers before long. Well, I just want to pick up what you what what Ed said off the top, though, actually, and and then you you kind of disagreed. I I, I made a mental note to, to to pick you up on it, but then uncharacteristically, John, you made a good point, which took my mind off it. <laughs> um, but but Ed, Ed, you said that you think we're watching some of some of the best football, and I'm I'm with you. It's not it's you said hell for leather, John. I said we're not playing as hell for leather, but I think some of the passing. I mean, the the, the build up to that to to Toddy's goal was was just absolutely sumptuous. So what 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 is it that you think we're, we're missing in terms of style of play or you know because the possession is there we created 16 has no, 16 shots that we can I think I wouldn't necessarily no I think what what I said is I I enjoyed the football of 2018-19 a little bit more because it, it was pure entertainers wasn't it you know that, that's absolutely what we were in the championship um we look a a better it was quite stressful. Now. sorry it was quite stressful yeah, it was quite. Yeah, but, I mean that, that, that's kind of well. I don't know. We're kind of doing that this season in so much as we're only winning by by one goal most of the time. Um, I think you know Cardiff and Bristol are the only games that we've won by by more than that. Um, but we look a better side this this season. I think that's undeniable. There's there's more quality to the squad. Um, you know, Emmy Buendia, Todd Cantwell, Max Aaron's have have all visibly grown over the last few games. I think. Well, Max Aaron's has been fantastic all season. So. Yeah, I think we're a better side than we were this time, you know, two seasons ago. But two seasons ago will just always be so special for me. And I think it, it probably makes a big difference that that we were there and we could see it and we could feel it. Don't you think, though, the difference uh, this season is um, is defensive? That we had mm. a moment in the championship season where we went up and then in the Premier League of that sublime link play going forward and scoring. But when you now see the relationship between the centre-backs and holding midfield and the way in which they wait for the moment and the ball goes forward and comes back. The kind of moments where three seasons ago the crowd were getting really frustrated and now you see the brilliance of it and uh, it's not only that we have been more solid at the back this season than in the last few but the link from defence going forward and creating the um, the openings which that brilliant midfield steps into. I mean, that feels like it's on a higher plane. Mm. Yeah. May I may I make may I make a suggestion as to why why I think that might be there? And and it, it may seem simplistic, but what is the difference in those two last two seasons and and now? It's it's a young man by the name of Oliver Skip, um, who who is I mean still an ever present. Well, in terms of starting every game. Uh, obviously, formerly of, of this podcast, a couple of episodes again. If you if you didn't get a chance to listen to that one, that you know still available on our, our podcast feed. Um, so not only a very enjoyable company, young gentleman, but I mean, again, I thought he was imperious at the weekend. He, he got plaudits from the from the commentary uh, team again. 
Um, and, and it's not even necessarily that he receives the ball and plays out. It's not that it always goes through him in it would in the ways it, it can do a Mario, it can do a um it can do a Kenny. It's it's actually the way he occupies space and the way he is he's always making such intelligent runs when Zimmerman or um Hanley in the case of the last few games have received the ball from McGovern. And I think his his movement is so intelligent. He 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 is for me an absolute Jenga piece. Now we, you know, we that you do feel that he. I, I wouldn't want to see us go into a game without him. Maybe as maybe previously we were worried about Cruel, and obviously we, we've kind of got off lightly there. But I mean, he's he he really has he really does look like he is going to be something special. I mean, he's so young and obviously English, so you, you dread to think how much he would be worth at the moment if he was available. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think. Um... Grant Hanley's form has been absolutely magnificent this season as well. And I think that makes a big difference to the the defensive work that, that you know, kind of Ed, Ed has, has talked about. Um, so I think it's not, Skip has been phenomenal. The, there's no doubt about that. And I think he's he's easily in the, the top three kind of player of the season already. And if he carries on this form, he'd have, he'd have a really good shout of, of actually winning the thing. But it seems to be collectively, we're much better. And I, I, you know, I use that word streetwise. I think we are way more streetwise this season and having a Grant Hanley and then a Ben Gibson next to him and a Max Ahrens who's, you know, kind of had what a hundred games under his belt now. Um, you know, it just seems like we're, we're much more of a solidified unit. Whereas in the eighteen nineteen side, um, it kind of felt like we were actually quite good at playing it out and playing it through the press, but we had errors in us. It just doesn't feel like we've got as many errors in us at the moment. Well, going back to the, you know, staying focused on the defence, there was a there was a kind of talking point that almost seemed more of a talking point in in the last couple of days, you know, a few days removed from the game. And that's the the kind of taking the knee, which we've seen, obviously, the uh, the Millwall uh, approach and, and the, the change of stance there, um, sort of then rammed down their throats when QPR then scored and, and celebrated by taking the knee in, in front of their, their fans. And um, we, we saw kind of our own take on it at, at Carroll Road in, in Zimmer, and, uh, which has been kind of noticed uh, the last few games, um, standing as opposed to to taking the knee um, in in support of um, the the racial injustices, um, rather than necessarily in uh, Black Lives Matter specifically the wider political organisation. So it's handy that we've got a politician um, on on the line. It's, Ed, it's a it's a thorny situation because these 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 players have got such an incredible platform. And they and those with who are bright and and as cerebral as, as, as Christoph, who is a again formerly on this podcast, he is a bright guy. You know, he he is one of the brighter uh, footballers. Um, so it must be so tricky for them. Presumably, they they must be getting some kind of advice about 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 what what gestures they might make on such a public platform. I think they'll get advice and uh, support, but in the end. These are decisions that they make for themselves. And Christoph, I think, has not only made that decision, but he's explained it. He is a, a very thoughtful um, guy, a real leader. He's done great work for the club, just on the charitable side, but um, the, the pioneering work the club's been doing on, with, on the Pride agenda. And, uh, and when he says that you know, he wants to, to fight racism in football, I think he's, he's totally sincere. And he's made a decision that he doesn't think for him um, carrying on kneeling is is right and I think you have to respect that but all the other players are taking a different view 
and the crowd have supported them. I think it's been great for the Premier League, for the EFL, for football, to see the stand which has been taken over the course of um, this year, the solidarity with their fellow professionals. But um, I don't think, you know, when we had the incident at Millwall a couple of weeks ago, there was kind of conclusions being drawn about the view of the club. I don't think you should draw any of those con conclusions about Christoph at all. I think he's a very sincere, straight guy. And if he says he doesn't think now that the honest thing for him to do is to keep doing that because he thinks it's become, it's losing its meaning, you know, I think if it was me, I'd kneel, but it's his call. And I think we should respect him for that. It's a tricky one, isn't it, John? Because it, it's, we are in a, a very kind of binary state, mm -hmm. um, especially on on social media. You, you, you know, everything is basically, are you a goodie or a baddie? Uh, it's, it's very difficult to have any kind of grey area where you think, well, I, I do like this policy, but I do not understand the, you know, there's a there's a tribal element. I mean, it's a bit like you know, in in Ed's days at um, in, in Westminster, you know, it's every radio interview you, you you have to get your policies across and bash the other side. You can't possibly give them any credit. It feels a bit it feels a bit like that, really. Uh, and obviously, I'm I'm taking the mic a little bit there, Ed. I, I know it's not quite as cartoonish as this, but. That, that's that's I was going to say. Have no, you watched the thick of it? Definitely that cartoon. But, but I don't watch that. I was trying. Uh, it, well, yeah, Ed doesn't watch that particular documentary. <laughs> yeah, it bring, bring, brings back too many uh, too memory, many memories. No, I mean, I, I was I was just trying to give you a way out, Ed, saying I'm sure, of course, you wouldn't be so base as that. But I, I feel. We, you know, one of our brethren has, has has been under under kind of a bit of attack on social media for 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 effectively just pointing out that that it's it would be good to understand it and 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 i think but he has explained it today i think he's done an interview which i read in the pinkin today which explains it the, th the thing is it's you know of course it's easier if the group makes a decision as a group or the league or the premier league and they made a decision to all do this and at a certain point um you know they you know things will change i'm sure but collectively but until then um the vast majority of play players are doing it and and rightly uh, in my view, because this is this is a long-term challenge. But Christoph has explained his view in a very sincere way, in a very open way, in a very honest way. And so I don't think he should be um, be be chastised for that. I think I think you know it's an individual decision, and he's taken a different decision from the other other guys. But I think it's his call. I completely agree that it, that it is that it is completely his his place. The, I think the the tricky area, and this is where where I was kind of opening up the the, the, the topic on. Um, on the platform side of things is some of the, the kind of vitriol that our, our friend was, was getting was around, well, he shouldn't have to explain himself. And, and I do feel that when it is, um, when it is a, a highly politicized issue and you have that platform, I don't know about you, John, I do think he, I do think if you, if you are taking a contrarian view, because that contrarian view has got, has got so much negativity attached to it, not through Christoph's fault, but through mm. the actions of others. I, I do think actually, yeah, it would have been sensible maybe a couple of games earlier to say, look, yeah. there's really good reasons why I'm not going to do it. And these are what they are. It's not because I'm a baddie. And I completely agree. And I think that the, the less noise you make, um, the more people will fill in the blanks with their own narrative. And, and that's the real difficulty around all of this is that that people will construct their own narrative. And, and what was perhaps a little bit more worrying is that you know the suggestions um, from the game at the weekend were when it was observed that Z Zimmerman wasn't taking the knee, uh, I mean, and I'm not going to debate the the whys and wherefores and and whether he should or not. You know, as Ed said, I I definitely would, but you know that's it is a personal choice. But it seemed like there was a suggestion that some people had jumped on that and actually had actively 
cheered Zimmerman for not doing so, which I don't know, it just felt a bit strange rather than getting behind the the players for for a stance, you know, kind of which which was actively anti-racist. It was almost like they were cheering him for for not being or, you know, them perceiving that, you know, he was taking a stand. It's a really tricky, tricky issue. Um, And it it is down to personal choice. But uh, that's where I think he should have perhaps, as you said, maybe a couple of games ago, come out and said something because otherwise, you know, as I say, people fill in the blanks and and that can be really dangerous on social media. What's fantastic news is that we are top of the league at Christmas and I think it's 10 of the last 11 people who were top of the league at Christmas went on to to get automatic promotion. Um, Let's look ahead to the the festive games. Uh, It's top, middle or bottom for us. We we, we go to 5th, 19th and 13th. Um, and I was actually looking at Bournemouth because it's it feels ever so early, but you're already kind of starting to feel like, you know, I'm already kind of getting into the mindset of I need to see who Bournemouth are playing because it's feeling a bit too horse racy at the moment, although that, that might sound silly in a couple of months, but currently that's what it feels like. They only play twice over this Christmas period before the FA Cup game, whereas we've got the three games, um, and, and they've got a couple of tricky ones, Brentford and, and Stoke. So a draw, a draw, a, a recently changed manager. What for, I mean, for a start, Ed, what do you think might happen there? I mean, um, it can go two ways, can't it? New manager bounce, or but you see what happened with Pulis. It hasn't exactly gone well for him when they've changed their manager. Well, look, uh, they're obviously in a bit of a mess, Watford. Um, and it's not the first time that they've um, made these kind of de- decisions. I mean, you know, it's not like they're in the bottom half, it's not exactly a long-term decision that, uh, that that they've taken here. But we've had a very, very good away record. I mean, in a way, it kind of contradicts what John was saying earlier. Even when the crowd is cheering for them, we're winning uh, away from home. And um, I think we can go to Watford with a with a lot of confidence uh, to uh, and, and come away with points. That's what I would um, think. Like, you never know because... Maybe they get uh, that kind of post-manager bounce. But well, they've, they've if, had... if, if I was Daniel, I'd not be worrying about it too much. I'd tell our guys to play their game. They've had um, 13 managers in the last seven and a half years. I mean, that's, that's just... It's unbelievable, isn't it? And and what, one thing I wanted to ask you, Ed, obviously with, with your... You, you've travelled as part of the... Uh, the, the kind of hierarchy of the club, you know, you've been in the in the directors' lounges and you've been received by received by the other officials of the other clubs. Um, what's it like when when such a, you know, we've got a reputation quite rightly as a stable, thoughtful, considered, long term kind of calm led club. Though that that yeah, we are very stable. We we, we do we do trend. You know, our, our leaders, um, you know, Delia Michael and and, and the most recent um, exec committee. You know, we are are do take a long term view on things. What's it like when you go to places like Watford and, and and Aston Villa, who were going through a tumultuous time when you might have visited there? Um, is does it feel a bit strange? Kind of, do, do you pick up on that kind of vibe behind the scenes when you go in that that this is kind of a club in crisis or Sunderland maybe? You know, if you go to one of their, you know, go to an away game there. I think quite often. I mean, if the uh... When an away team comes to Norwich, we always um, not only meet their um, chair, chief executive directors, but sit with them and have dinner, talk, talk to them beforehand. It's often not the case when you go to um, other clubs. And sometimes um, the senior people won't even be in the room. You won't see them at all. And 
it's when you can see that there's a sort of attention and a fear when you meet them or there's a kind of a power outside which is um making decisions from a long way away you can sort of sense sometimes the attention uh i remember being we we beat watford is that the last game of the season where we came down from the premier league yeah that's right in 2016 and um and uh, you know the crowd gave alex neil a very good reception the watford um guys on on the day were beside themselves and they were they were kind of angry and demonstrative about it in a way that i don't believe we would ever have been on the road so maybe it's just the culture there i mean you, you can see that in the changes of managers you've seen over the um the years they're, they're under pressure the guys on the ground to deliver and there's uh, somebody pulling the strings and saying what's going on and it's the easiest thing to do to make a change well, that was the season the that Sanchez Flores had just taken them to the semi-final of the FA Cup and, and then still got still got the sack. Exactly. Um, you could feel that happening that day, I can tell you. Yeah. No, it's, it, is, it is very, very strange. In terms of really with real warmth and, and hospitality, you know, where, where, where did you, where do you feel actually, you, you know, we were treated really, really well and there was kind of that family um, uh, kind of feeling when, when you guys rocked up on, on a away day? I think in um, in lots of places, especially in the in the championship, you go to some of the big clubs and it's posh but quite distant. Um, going to, for example, Burton away, I mean, they were so pleased to be playing us, to be in the championship, to be um, to have us um, with them. Um, actually, you know, th- th- this may um, surprise you. I think Ipswich always try. Um, quite hard but um, there's there's always a, a tension in the room <laughs> uh, despite that and newcastle's like going to um to a nightclub about one in the morning i mean it's a very strange um, <laughs> strange atmosphere forest i always like going to because the forest i mean i like the chairman but also uh the, you'd have ken clark the former mp was uh often there and actually current mp i should say is he um, a forest fan i didn't know he's, that he's a forest fan plus um ken clark but also um uh, McGovern and Frank Clark were often there. The, the, the Forest greats from the 1970s were there and joining in. I always liked um, when Man City came um, to us because they were the, um, I can't remember his name, who's, who's, who's the uh, oh, he's our ambassador. I tell you, I'm getting to that, that stage in life where names are a bit, bit, um, bit harder. But um, no, I, I think. Uh, it, it would surprise you. Rotherham, very friendly place to go. Um, Derby were friendly. West Brom, very tense. Uh, go to Birmingham. The, the the owners were in a different room, and we didn't see them at all. So lots of lots of difference. A lot of um, variation. I think it's such a big big part of the uh, the culture of the club comes from comes from the top, and as much as. Um, as much as the the players and and some kind of pundits will sometimes say when there is a managerial change or when there's boardroom tension or takeover talks, oh no, that the players are just focusing on the pitch, and you just think, how can it possibly be? There's no organisation where when there's tension and ruckus, you know, in the upper echelons, it doesn't matter if the, if there's you know twenty or or three or four hundred employees, 
you know, un- unless you're in a huge corporation, which you know football clubs aren't, they might be some of the some of the turnovers might be up there, but you're still only talking a few hundred employees. Um, that 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 kind of thing filters down, um, especially in, in in places as small as a football club, where there is that, you know, on match day you are all thrown in together in in the same place at the same time, kind of you know, once or twice a week. Um, so yeah, I think I, that is that is one part of the that's one part of the football um, kind of overall match day experience, which does really does fascinate me, um, which is why I always <laughs> ask the question when I can, just, just because it's the it's hard one. Thing, I tell you that the hard thing is at home. It's fine. If you win at home, you can celebrate. But if you lose, then um, it's always tough. But if you look forward to the next game and console each other. If you go away, it's a disaster. If you win, you know, it's pretty hard to be the visiting directors and start and start cheering when yeah. <laughs> the vast majority of the room have just lost 3-0, especially if they're in a lot of trouble. And of course, if you lose, they're all cheering and celebrating and you just want to get out. So, um, I mean, I went to loads and loads of away games um, with um, Delia and Michael and the um, directors. And, you know, you're there to represent the club and it's an important part of the role. But um, win or lose, it was always a bit tense. Whereas at home, you're always amongst friends. Was there any kind of, uh, I mean, you know, Delia is hell of a stateswoman of the game in terms of, you know, she's been doing it so many years and she's so wonderful and welcoming and a fantastic personality to have associated with, with the club. Um, what kind of advice did, did, did she give you or did, or did Michael take you aside? And, you know, when, when you were, when you were brought into the folders, right, okay, you're, you're going to be wearing the, the club badge on your crest of your blazer and you're going to be there match day representing at the senior level. What, what did, was there any kind of do's and don'ts that they, that they kind of gave you advice? I think that look, Michael and Delia, when they're home or away, they're, they're fans. And so if we score in the stand, they'll always uh, cheer. There's, they're, they're not going to suppress what they they, they think. Um, one time, actually, just before I went on the board, we went to Norwich Leeds when I was the um, the MP for just like 100 yards outside Ellen Road was my constituency. Brilliant. And um, we... Leeds scored the first goal. 29,000 Leeds fans stood up. I was sitting with Michael and, uh, and Delia. Just sat there. We equalised. And um, 29,000 fans turned to look at the Norwich fans in the corner and see what Delia Smith looked up like. And there was the local MP standing up with him. And I can remember at that moment, as I stood up with Michael and Delia, thinking, what am I doing? I mean, it's like <laughs> I got more abuse that afternoon of that Leeds it's the only game I've ever been to where five minutes to go we were drawing. You know, if we nicked a late winner, I feared for my life. Seriously, I mean, it was totally wild. Um, Would you celebrated a late winner though, Ed? Well, of yeah, course, it would have been fist pumping. Of course, I would, of course <laughs> I but I would have been in a lot of trouble. <laughs> Ken Bates, though, the main Delia and Michael arrived, but they were a little bit late arriving, and and we sat down. And Delia and Ken Bates said, um, "What do you think of the food to me?" Because he's obviously, they're all always worried about what Delia's going to think of the cooking. And I said, well, I thought steak kidney pie is, is, is very good. It was pudding. Steak kidney pudding is very good. I said, it's good to have suet in the in the pastry. And Ken Bates says, we'd have suet at Leeds United. I said, what? Honestly, I think you do. Delia Michael arrived. Ken calls out the chef to say, is there suet in this pastry? And the chef says, yes, there is. And so Delia says it tastes very nice. And so Ken got, got schooled that day. 
we'd be really interested to to know actually how it all came about in terms of um, you joining the club as as chairman and um, you know how much of an honour was that for you as someone who who kind of supported the Canaries from early seventies I want to say but am I doing you a disservice there? No, no. I mean, the, the truth is, I wanted to play for Norwich rather than to be involved in any other way. That was always my ambition. Um, and supporting Norwich is kind of multi-generational in our family. My um, my grandfather, who I never met, he died when my dad was 10 years old, but he used to work on Gas Hill for the gas uh, company. And All he would right. walk down on Saturday lunchtime and then would work on the turnstiles at Carrow Road. This would be in the 40s. And um, my dad and uncle would go and my, um, my dad, my granddad, would um, let his two sons over the turnstile and then they'd go to watch the game. He then went off on the bus to work on the speedway as a steward in the evening as well. So um goes right back in the family. My first game was Norwich Leeds, January 1973, when um, the great Leeds team, and uh, we were um, not in the top division, but we were played them in the FA Cup and drew, drew, drew 1-1. And Kevin Keelan came about five yards away from where we were sitting to pick a ball up, um, one of the best moments of my life. And um, back then, I wanted to play. Um, but uh, it gets to a certain point where you realise maybe it's not going to happen. The truth was I always, I, I always, I always had this, this idea that maybe, you know, a bit like Spud and the, the refereeing, maybe even when I was on the board, <laughs> you know, if I had my kit in the car, so there would be a catastrophe and somebody would say, we're short, who can go on quick? But it never happened. And so, um, so I, I never actually got to play for the for the team. But I had, um, you know, we had a season ticket for for a long time in the the Upper Barclay. But a couple of games a season um, away or home, um, we would go. I knew Delia from um, from from, from kind of football and lots of diff- different things over the years, and so she would invite us to go to um, to to a game, and uh, and we were invited. By Delia and Michael to go to the um, the playoff final with them at Wembley. So, um, and that was two weeks after I lost my seat in 2015. Two days after I lost my seat um, was the the second leg of the Ipswich game, um, where you know where we won brilliantly and the Ipswich fans came on the pitch at the end. Do you remember? And um, this Ipswich fan yelled in my face really loudly, "Loser!" Because I'd lost my seat two days before, but they were the losers that day. So it didn't bother me. Um, and so there we were in the, um, in, in the playoff final and we were, we were invited to go along. So the rest of the family had seats somewhere at the stand and me and my son went with them. And, um, and then, but four months later, um, I had a call from Delia um, to say that, that, that um, there's going to be changes in the board. And Stephen Fry was going to step down from the board and, um, would I come and be a non-executive director of the football club? And that was not only the first I'd heard of it, but the first I'd even ever thought of it. It never occurred to me. If you told me age five and a half, six, going to that Leeds game in 73, that one day I'd be on the board of North City Football Club, I'd never, I mean, I probably wouldn't have known what the board was, but if, <laughs> if I, if, when I found out, I wouldn't have believed somebody like me could get on the board of our, um, our football club. And, um, and then, if you remember, there were changes, which then happened um, very quickly. The um, 
former chairman stood down and suddenly Delia said, you're coming on the board. Um, would you, uh, uh, Alan Bow said standing down, would you be the chair? And so I never actually was a non-executive director before I became the, the, the chairman, but it wasn't supposed to be that way. At least as far as I was aware, I was going on the board and then they needed a chair. And you know, I've chaired lots of meetings in my life. So I said, yes. And what elements of the club were, were you specifically responsible for during your time as, as chairman? Was, you know, was there much? Because I guess we never see the, um, the inner workings of how hands-on, you know, kind of Delia and Michael are. And as you say, to us, that they really appear to be fans and they kind of let the experts get on and, and manage those elements of the club. But, you know, what is it specifically that, that you were involved with? Well, look, the board, I mean, this is not a, um, simply a privately owned club like uh, uh, Middlesbrough, say, or Arsenal. I mean, this is a public company um, with, you know, thousands of shareholders. And Delia and Michael are majority shareholders, and therefore they, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's their club. And at the, the AGM, um, they have the, the votes. But there's, um, there's lots of other shareholders who have a, uh, who the board has a, a duty to. And, um, and we as a board, and I as chair, we all took that very seriously. I mean, I signed very many financial documents, but if you're going to sign the financial documents and be there with the auditors, you've got to know that the numbers add up and the detail of the, the, the accounts. If, um, if there's decisions being made, you need to know that they're being made in, in the right way and through the um, appropriate uh, routes which we set up. Uh, we had a risk register, which um, I asked for, which we and we continually at every board meeting were looking at um, those kind of risks. Of course, the club was being run by David McNally. Alex Neal was the the manager. The two of them were um, on a day-to-day basis um, making the decisions, but any decision of significance was coming to the, the board and um, no financial decision, no player decision, um, was was ever made without David ringing me in that first period as um, the chair, and and it was my job to to say when I thought the board um, needed to, to meet or to have a phone call, and we we did that very regularly. So um, of course it's ch- it changes through time when there's different uh, people involved. Dio and Michael are, and I think, have become more hands-on over the last um, few years rather than. Less. And now you have the executive committee, which is um, which is kind of doing what David used to do in terms of the day to day. But the board, I think, is is important, takes its job uh, very seriously. I think sometimes in football, people think the chair is um, the same as the owner, the same as the decision maker. And sometimes you will see a private club which is run in that way. But this was this was a board where. A consensus of the responsible directors, in, of which, of course, Michael and Delia, by far the most important, was formed. Um, if there were differences, they were discussed and argued through. And, of co- and we always had a duty to make sure that all the shareholders, their views and their interests were being properly represented. represented. So it was something I kind of always took very seriously indeed, and it took huge amounts of time. You've obviously chaired lots of meetings and, you know, through the nature of your your career, have been involved in, in lots of different 
you know, types of meetings and, and been, been at a kind of a chair level or a directorship leadership level in lots of different ways. Um, how bonkers is football? You know, how much, how different is it to, to the, running some really serious business or some really serious parts of high office? Is it as clown car or can it feel as clown car and as different in, in how you behave as, as real life in inverted commas? Well, you said earlier that, you know, compared to the largest companies in the country, and these are not big businesses, they're, they're significant business, businesses, medium-sized uh, businesses, but there is no local business company concern institution which the people of Norwich care about more than the football club. And more than that, you know, on a day-to-day as well as week-to-week basis. So the community really, really cares about every aspect of the club, its values, the decisions it's, it's taken. Um, so, and that is unusual. I think um, there, there are very few institutions in our society where the, the community is so deeply committed and people's lives and their histories and their families and their memories are often shaped and intertwined with the story of this um, football club. And I think one of the things hasn't happened at Norwich, rightly, because it's always been and continues to be a community club. But when you have owners come in and think this is now their club and they start making decisions about the colour of the shirt, but also the style of football or the way the club behaves in the community, I mean, that, that can be incredibly upsetting because, you know, I think rightly fans see this as, as much their club as the owner. A second thing is that... Um, that and this is something I don't think I'd fully appreciated until you go onto the inside. That what's happened in the last uh, week on the field has a massive impact upon the mood in the city, in the club, the the media, and the decisions that you can take. And you know, when I was appointed the chair on Boxing Day, we beat Aston Villa, and you know, I kind of knew that if we'd lost that day. I mean, I'd have had a less good write-up. My, my surname would have figured in the headlines <laughs> rather more than it, than it did because we, we, we won. And you know, the football clubs are often making long-term decisions which are going to affect things for a considerable period. But the context is very shaped by how the team is doing on the, the pitch. And you know, it's, it's a good time at the moment because, because we're winning. And I think it's... Um, the, the, the huge achievement of the football club of Norwich City, Delia and Michael, is in that most short term of environments where last week matters so much to manage to take a long term view about the future of the club, mm. who's the manager, how we run the business. I mean, I think it's much, much harder than for you know the head of Marks and Spencers or John Lewis. I mean, huge companies, but they don't face anything like the short-term pressure that the football club faces and to be able to take a long-term view and to have confidence and to have patience is very difficult money is hugely important and um i mean more than i understood from the the outside but the other thing for a club like norwich is you have a a small number of big strategic decisions you make which hugely shape the future the person you pick as the manager um, and or the sporting director, and then two or three very big decisions you make on transfers each, each year 
if you are um, one of the biggest clubs, you can you know make a lot more big decisions and have some go right and some go wrong. But for a club like Norwich, um, you know the the individual decisions that you make on the financial side can have um, kind of profound long term impacts. And you know the the, the, the challenge is that if you won last week, it's easy to make them. And if you lost last week, it's harder to make them. But the consequences you'll be living with for three to five years, independent of how it felt on the day. Well, you made a few of those really big decisions, like, you know, speak. And also with regards to the money that, that was being spent, um, you know, you were there when we, we really, really backed Alex Neal. Um, with with some some players on on big salaries, um, you know, obviously one of them turned out to be a really good servant for the club, and one of it didn't really didn't didn't really work out. Of you know, closer and, and Naismith, for example, two examples. How much how much did it feel like a like a gamble? It, it it gets referred to as a gamble when when probably by the same people who also slate the club for not investing more um, when, when they don't spend. How, how much did that weigh on you? Whether or not you you pressed go on those big salaries. I mean, look, the, the reality is in the, whatever it was, 60th minute or around that time at home to Liverpool, when Naismith had scored and we were 3-1 up, it felt like we were making some, some great decisions. And, uh, and that's the nature of um, it's a results business. I'd come in as the chair just a couple of weeks uh, before. Um, the club really wanted to stay up. And at the time, I think when I came in, we were 14. But the transfer window the previous summer had been difficult. And um, David and McNally and Alex Neal had a very clear view of what they wanted. And Michael and Delia and the board backed their judgment. And, you know, I remember David ringing me to tell me about both of those deals. But, you know, I had no doubt that when I spoke to the directors, they were going to support David and Alex. And on Naismith in particular, David and Alex believed that Stephen Naismith, who Alex had played with, I think, before. Did he play with him? At, I'm trying to remember where, where, where he played with him. I think he, he played, he played against him, yeah, absolutely, in the SPL. Um, and, um, but, but, but he, exactly, they, they'd been on the pitch together. He knew him well. And their view was he could come in and he could score eight to ten goals in the second half of the season and he would make the difference. And that was David and Alex's firm view. And as I said, in that Liverpool game, we thought they might be right. Mm. And if that had turned out, I mean, it, the margins were so tight at the end. If you think of some of those running games at Crystal Palace and Man United, uh, Arsenal, games we were losing 1-0, I mean, it could have gone the other way. And people would have looked back on that January window and saying the club, you know, took some risks and went for it and they succeeded. But it, it was risky, and it was what Dave and Alex wanted, and it was supported by um, the owners and the, the board, and it didn't work out. And the reality then is that you're dealing with the consequences. And I think the fans will often think about um, the transfer fee, or they'll think about the wage. And the Naismith one, I mean, I had a long discussion with David about this, because the Naismith deal um, went through the... Um, the wage cap, and Norwich had a low wage cap compared to everybody else in the Premier League, but it did uh, go through it with his his bonus. Um, but the issues was the length of contract, because you you sign a contract for a number of years, 
which you hope is going to both succeed and bind in a great servant of the club. And if it doesn't work out, and then the management changes, and that player um, is older and uh, is not on the manager's kind of new agenda, you are saddled with millions of pounds on a contract which goes on and on and on. And that is the the that is the nature of, of football. I mean, I don't think I think there was no way for Norwich to buy an attacking goal scoring midfielder or a central defender without signing those kind of contracts. So it wasn't as though there was a choice. But what you learn is in those moments, you're making very long term decisions, which are either going to be seen as being great decisions or you know bad decisions. And of course what you always want is um the player who comes in with 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 a low price tag and then delivers like Tibu Puki, one of the great signings of my knowledge supporting uh, lifetime. But those aren't really the ones which which worry you. I mean the that summer we were we were in for a while for Russ McCormick and you know I mean thank thank goodness that deal was never done. If you look at the problems he then had um, at uh, to go to Villa, and then he went up to um, to um, the northeast, um, to up to, to I mean, dear me. So anyway, you remember the ones which um, you got away from, but uh, some of the the other ones can be can be very costly. And I think the club wanted us to 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 stay up. And David and Alex said, this is what we have to do. And uh, it didn't work. Mm. And then you deal with the consequences. And I think, you know, ultimately, lots of people looked at that signing and saw it as a real statement of intent. I don't think there was anyone, you know, from um, neutral observers to, to Norwich fans who who looked at that and thought, that's a bad signing. I mean, I've got plenty of Evertonians in the family and they, you know, obviously I, I spoke to them immediately and they were like, no, you've got a real good one. He'll, he'll work for the club. You know, he's... He's a talented player. He can play in a variety of positions. You just thought, you know, this is the kind of signing that will kick us on to the next level. I mean, and then it just didn't. If you, if you think if you think back to that um, window, the other deal which was done in the final hours, I mean, um, Vicky Martin drove up uh, to, yes. to sign this hours from the deadline was um, Madison coming from... Coventry, I think it was, yeah. and he, I mean, what a signing that that proved to be. And so there's swings and roundabouts if you think of the Madison deal compared to um, compared to Naismith, and that was also something which David, in particular, uh, drove at the time. That was seen as a bit of a kicking the teeth to the the academy to bring in a player like that when we had academy players coming through. But if you think back to that that era now, you know, how things were when I first arrived. On the one hand compared to what Stuart Webber and having a sporting director has done, the transfer process was much, much more short-termist. There was kind of real scrabbling around. It felt at the last minute um, trying to kind of bring in uh, targets, whereas the Stuart's approaches and the, the recruitment has been much, much more long-termist. And we've had players who won't be watched for a long time and then, you know, signed to come in at a later stage. We can all think of those players over the last uh, couple of years. On the other hand, um, the financial success of the club 
in the last um, few years has been secured, not simply by that Madison deal, but also by the flow through of talent, which was already in and coming through the Academy in 2015-16. And I'm not sure, I mean, I think the Academy is, is undoubtedly better now, culturally, tactically, better linked to um, the first team process. So I know, Stuart, this is something we spent a huge amount of time on, um, has really upped the game of the Academy. But at that time, the Academy was bringing through players who have had a huge footballing and financial impact on the football club. So there was some good stuff going on at that time as well. I think it was felt at the time, um, I don't think I was there, it it was felt at the time um, that that, that David McNally had been a, a really good steward of, of of that side of things, and it's interesting that um, you know that there had been some really good decisions made, and and he was really really highly thought of, and I think it came as a real shock that the, the way he left and, and the way that kind of resignation came about. Um, so how hard was it to how hard was it to kind of try and spin that, and how was it hard was it to try and come to an agreement with him, um, g- given that he had. It wasn't like he was, you know, disgraced or that anything could possibly be directly like linked back to him. So, how how, how tricky was that as a period to to be leading the club? I think, well, I mean, for, for me, it was, I was kind of very very new uh, in, and we didn't know that was going to happen until it happened. And I think, in retrospect, you look back and see that as the the end of of what had been a very very successful era. And um, and David really wanted to keep the team up, and there was nothing he wouldn't do. You know, I um, with David spent hours on a Friday afternoon putting those clacker things on the seats all across the the River End, all hands to the pub because we, um, if, if there was anything which we could do to make the difference, we were going to um, to do it. And so when when it kind of dawned that you know. It wasn't going to work. Um, it did feel like an era ending, and suddenly we were plunged into a whole new situation without a, um, a chief executive. And David and Alex had been very close, and Alex was a, a young manager. We didn't have the sort of the, the the sporting director role. We didn't have a kind of kind of strong, very long established um, group of um, scouts who Alex had brought in. So um, you know, it was it was a very it was a very tough uh, summer, and not something which um, which which had been had been had been planned for. I think the club was David was planning to stay in the in the Premier League, and um, there wasn't really a plan B. Obviously, we know we we know we know a fair bit about how you go recruiting a manager. How how do you how do you go about recruiting that type of position? You know, it more took, commercial um, leaning. I mean, I think the, the answer is that it took. Um, it took, it took well over a year in the end to sort it out. And until we could finally get to what we, um, what we um, knew was, um, you know, a good, uh, a good model. I, I um, you know, uh, um, was um, talking to people in those, in those days after David, um, um, moved, you know, moved on, and uh, we were, we were uh, Steve Stone, the finance director, Emilio and Michael. We were all talking about, um, you know, was this a time for, um, for to change the uh, the structure on the footballing side because we knew that there were there were problems in 
ways in which the recruitment has been managed and the and the engagement with the academy. But the, the reality is that it's very hard to do that um, when you have maybe existing, an existing manager in place. And Alex was the manager, and Alex didn't want to. You know, Stuart brought in Daniel Farker. Uh, it's very hard for the manager to bring in a sporting director. And we, um, with Damien Kamoli, we had some conversations. We discussed at the board whether we would have a review of the arrangements on the footballing side, but that wasn't something that um, Alex was at all keen on. And um, and if if you have somebody like Alex, you need to have a strong financial chief executive who could work with them in partnership in the way in which uh, in which David had done. So. Although I think we hankered after moving to the sporting director model, uh, it was clear that just wasn't on the table for us. And so we had to, to find a replacement for David. And um, we, we, had, we, we found footballing headhunters, people who've done a lot of the, um, the football jobs. We spent a huge amount of time with them. We, uh, Delia and Michael and I spent um, hours in, in London meeting different um Candidates, uh, candidates came down and um, to to um, the club to visit to meet the other directors, and uh, and we and we went for Jez because very experienced, strong, uh, track record in football, knew the football business. Um, somebody Alex could work with. Actually, the two of them I think got on very well in that um, in that in that autumn. Um, Michael and Delia decided he was the one that they wanted. They wanted somebody like David um, if we weren't going to change the structure. And that's what we, we went for. And we all hoped it was going to work out. And uh, as you know, it didn't. But uh, we tried our best. It wasn't plan A. Plan A would have been to change the structure. Um, that was on the table. Alex wasn't going to go for that. So... Um, Plan B was a, a David replacement, and we hoped we'd found one. When you said that Alex wouldn't go for it, did, was that was it was he maybe a bigger a bigger part of that discussion than than um, than maybe he should have been? Like you know, I was was the idea that look, we're really really backing Alex, uh, and and he was still really highly thought of even after that relegation. I, I remember the, the you know he I remember him saying at the end of season two, um, and it was widely reported that. Um, you know, he he was sort of a bit surprised and a bit embarrassed at how how big a reception you know he was getting. You know, because they're only two wins and we just stayed up. You know, two losses, turning turning two losses to wins. Um, so it just it it seems odd in a way that uh, that he would be able to say, well, no, I I don't want a sporting director. Is that naive of me? It's it's a um, it's a tribute to the kind of club that we are. You know, if it had been Watford, it'd have been sacked, but um, the fans supported him. Ian and Michael strongly supported him. The board strongly supported him. Um, you know, we, he, he was the guy we brought in, a young manager who had taken us up, and nobody felt that he, he, that, that, that he was um, you know, done. We, we all felt as though we'd been unlucky in those um, weeks before. But what happens when you go down is you're suddenly plunged into a very complex situation where you know, a squad which has taken you up, but in this case, up, down, and up again. Going down is, is, is older, different set of expectations, a lot of you know, huge cost in the, in the wage bill. Um, of course, you want to um, 
to bring in kind of new options, but that's very hard given the fact your income is about to kind of collapse. I mean, the move from the Premier League to the Championship, even with the um, parachute payments, is a huge shock for a club like Norwich and a much bigger fall in overall income than the contractual reductions in the players' wages. And so immediately we're into, uh, and Alex is into, with the absence of David, managing all of those individual player relationships, which often become contractual. Um, things which are now split between um, between Daniel and Stuart were all falling really in the first instance onto to, to Alex, but um, uh, with with Steve and myself spending huge amounts of time trying to bring in people to support him, and you know there were players we wanted need to move on, so it was a very tough time within which it's very hard just to say. We're going to bring in a new sporting director who's going to be your new football boss. Um, the the thing which we considered doing was bringing in somebody from the outside who could do a piece of work for us over a month to look at how the football side was run and propose some some changes. But uh, Alex was um, didn't want to do that that either, and there, there was there was an imperative to get ready for a a new season which is um, which is weeks away. And I think what, what, what you've seen over the, the last few years since the, the change, since the arrival of Stuart and Daniel, is that the, the football side, on the financial side, the board is always having to think about how the finances will be, the relationship with the bank one, two, three years ahead. But I think the football side is now planning um, in the same way with, 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 a, with a, um, a really long-term focus. And when I think back to, you know, we were talking at the beginning about what it looked like watching the Cardiff game on Saturday. And when I think back to the, the Germany tour in the summer of um, 2017, 2016, when Daniel had um, just arrived and, you know, he, he was clear how he wanted his team to play, and you know the the passing across the back four, link into um, into you know the holding midfield. I mean to say it's precarious is um, is a massive understatement. The, the the transformation in Alex Tetty's ball handling skills as a holding midfield is is huge. What a professional he is. I mean how great he is now. But back in those days, Daniel had a vision for how the team should play. And Stuart, on the recruitment side, has found the players to fit to that vision through you know, a season and promotion and relegation and to where we are. And when I watch them play, I see the fruits of all of those, those years. And, um, and that, that, that isn't how it was before. It was much, much more, it felt much more short term on the footballing side. Just just going back though, one one step, and, and and that's it's fantastic that you, it's fantastic for you as a, a Norwich fan to have such a um a ver a variety really of being able to to point to incredible transfers that were done that earned the the club money and point to some good hires and some not so good hires. Yeah. I, I do just want to want to ask you one more thing about about our friend um, Jez Moxie in that 
I've um you know until we did the, the, the podcast you know I wasn't exactly spending a great time a de- great time great amount of time with Delia and Michael and you know we weren't you know seeing around chatting to players all the time um I, I don't actually remember ever feeling so alienated from uh someone who works at Norwich City Football Club as I did pretty much from minute one uh, for, from Jez Moxie Do, I, I don't know whether or not you or, or anyone on the board were, were aware at the time that that uh, he was he was kind of caught on camera on one of our televised games, laughing and smiling as as the fans were singing "We want our football back." It, it, it's it just seemed the oddest appointment, and at no point did he ever seem you know he must be a relatively bright bloke, right? Like he's been a CEO of lots of football clubs, and he must know a fair bit about business. He never seemed to get or grasp the culture of the club or what it meant. He, he, there was never any relationship building there. So it, how? How awkward did it feel to 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 know that that had been such a miss a miss hire? It was um it was a it was a bad time in the board and before and after the games as it was for the fans. I mean to go back to the thing I said to you earlier, the the atmosphere and the your ability to make decisions and to make changes is hugely affected by the results on the pitch. And nobody can blame Jez for that. But the results on the pitch that autumn were were terrible. And going into Christmas, um, you know, we were, in a, we were in a bad way. And I think I think I think in part, this, this is not an excuse because I agree with you, but Jez did absorb personally a lot of the broader unhappiness about the fact that the team who had come down from the Premier League was playing badly. And, and losing, and that wasn't uh, on him. And although he was the person who who went um, in the end, um, we you know, Alex went as well some weeks after. And I, I think the, the the mood around the football didn't improve in um, in 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 the, the 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 second half of the season after Jez had gone. But you know, Jez had come from I think a different kind of club and. Uh, you know, we, we had we had tried so hard to find um, the person who we thought could do the job which we felt needed doing financially and in management terms and working with Alex on recruitment, but um, but it was it was it was clear that that that, that, that culturally didn't work. He didn't get on with Michael and Delia. He didn't get on with um, the fans. You know, a couple of uh, decisions were made which kind of really rebounded kind of pricing decisions over cup games which were um the wrong thing to do and where a new guy was saying i know i know better and so it was a bad period and uh, the, the way the way the way i rationalize it is is this we'd had a successful period of time in the club we then got relegated we needed change and you don't always get to the change you need in one bound. And we had some steps forward and some steps back, and we had some expensive um, kind of moments in that year. And we we ended up bringing in a sporting director who could bring in a coach, and that was in the end the right outcome for the football club. And you know, I wish we could have done that in July. 26, 2016, June 2016, but it's naive to think that, that we could have done or that would have been 
easy. It just wasn't possible at that time. So, you know, now when I look at the quality of the football we play, but also the, the strength of the club financially and the academy, I think maybe that was a period of pain we had to go through, but it doesn't, it doesn't make it any easier. It did feel it wasn't, it wasn't it wasn't a good time. It it did feel at that at that point it was it was a low, but then out of those low points, usually, you know, it's it's um it's where a club like Norwich kind of rises like a phoenix from the flames almost. Uh, it felt like an opportunity at that point. Is that the way you saw it and, and perhaps the board saw it to oh. to mould the club in in the image that you felt was right? And and I've I've read before that um, you were the kind of driving force for, for a sporting director. So how much did you have to kind of play that card quite heavily at that point? I think by the time we got to Jez moving on, Delia and Michael wanted a big change. And by this point, um, this is not the same as how things were um, straight after coming down in 2015. They, they, they were going to get what they wanted and they wanted to change things, including culture um, and that they wanted people on the inside of the club to be feel proud to work for it as well as the fans to support it and they um and and so I don't think that it took any persuading from people like me or uh, Steve or Steve Stone or um others at that time uh it, it was driven by, by them what is true is that um when We'd had those discussions the previous summer. Um, that was a harder time to have those discussions. But by this point, um, that was something which you know, really Delia and Michael led from the front. So I'm not, I, I wouldn't take, I, I, it would be wrong for me to, to seek to take the credit um, for that at all. That was something which was very much driven by the owners and the, um, and the, uh, you know, and, the, um, the team, Steve Stone was very important in bringing Stuart Weber in with a big champion for him. And then it was Stuart who really um, drove the Daniel Farker appointment. So um, I, w- I would say who should get the credit for um, Stuart coming in? Uh, Delia, Michael and Steve Stone. And But clearly you were part of the recruiting team, I would imagine, for, for um, Stuart coming in. What qualities did yourself and Steve and, and you know, kind of and Delia and Michael what qualities did you see in him? Why did you think he'd be the right fit? I think we 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 knew we had to match long-term planning on the financial side with long-term planning on the football side. There was a frustration that the academy wasn't properly uh, valued in the previous um, uh, regime. Um, and we wanted to, uh, to, have, to, have, to have somebody who... Could could plan um, the footballing side years ahead, and I think as well, it's it's um, football's changed a lot from how it was even ten uh, years ago. And these days, I mean, Daniel Fark does not have to spend a lot of his week ringing agents, going on scouting trips, and worrying about financial contracts. And if there's a, those kind of things which need to be sorted out. Um, he can pass that on, but he is working enormous hours on the footballing side, on the coaching, on the team, and the 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 um, and and the players, and trying to put all of that kind of business football coaching into one place as um, you know 
the old model of Arsene Wenger or Alex Ferguson. I mean, those days are gone, and I think we could we could we could see that. And that was that was a conversation we started the previous um, summer. And so when we were thinking who has that you know, modern sophistication in transfers, who's done it, who's done it at a club like ours, look at the Huddersfield um, track record, look at the way in which they have brought in players on, on, without spending huge amounts of money. Um, Huddersfield have done it, Burnley have done it as well, um, but with a different style of football at Burnley. Um, and we were, we were, we were kind of, we were so pleased when Stuart Webber was willing to talk to us. But you know, if you think four years on and you look back, what a good decision he made. Because, you know, look where Huddersfield are now and look at the, the depth of support and backing he's had at this, um, at this club. So um, you know, we, we were really pleased he came in and he was definitely the right person for us, you know, in that David Camoli mould. But... Um, I think he also will, will think he made a good call. I think that that's definitely going to be something that is, is looked upon as, as a massive success and, and it, it must be a huge um a huge sense of pride to be involved in that recruitment process as much as you're you know, as much as you're obviously giving other people the the, the credit along, alongside yourself. Um you, you mentioned there the, the the business side of things being um being handled by, by Stuart and Daniel being focused on more on the football side of things. Probably that was most clearly um, highlighted relatively early in their in their reign, pre any real success on the pitch, when when Madison was you know took you know was sold for that huge fee, which obviously you touched upon before. What an incredible piece of business it was getting him for whatever it was two hundred and fifty grand from from Coventry. Um, Daniel wasn't exactly over the moon about the fact that James Madison had to be sold. Um, what what how was that um, kind of politically at the time you know within the club and um, how, how much of a reluctant sale was that? Or, and and also, how essential was it? You know, was there a plan B to to kind of pay the bills and guess, you know, guess guess over the line if we hadn't have sold him? I think it's uh, the by that point we were at the end of two years of parachute payments, and this this was a financially very precarious time for the for the club and. Of course, it is the case that it's partly to do with some of the legacy from the the, uh, um, the, the Naismith transfer. But the fundamental fact is that you're not in the Premier League and you've gone from an income, a turnover of over 100 million a year down to around around 30. And even if we hadn't had the, um, the Naismith expensive transfer and that that transfer window by not going up in those two years we were in financially very difficult uh, situation and this was this was a conversation which the board was having for hours again and again something steve stone the finance director and i were talking about all the time and talking with the bank as well but this was a reality which i think daniel had come into he's brought in a sporting director by stewart um knowing the financial pressures we will face if we um, if we can't go up in the first two years. So none of this is a, is a surprise. But he was also told, I think, by Stuart and the board that we were going to back him because he had a transformatory plan and we were going to support him to to do that. And sometimes, you know, because the managers come to the board meetings, you have bullish conversations. But with with Daniel, I think he, of course, he was frustrated um, to lose Madison or to lose um, Murphy's 
uh, along the way, Brady. But it was also these were decisions which um, which which had to be taken because financially we really didn't have any any choice. And I don't think um, in the case of the the Madison transfer, I think the fans always understood this guy was a star. He deserved to play in the Premier League. We weren't going up, and we we needed the money because um, because we had a big funding gap. And that final game of the season against uh, Sheffield Wednesday was one of the most, in retrospect, stressful days that um, of my kind of professional life because um, everybody knew Madison was going to move um, if we could get a um, the right deal. Stuart was confident. Um, not sure, but confident that this could be um, could be done. And then, um, third of the way through the first half, he he came off, and we all assumed that this was a bit of sensible precautionary game management by um, Madison. And he actually, that if he still has, he had a very good agent at the time, thoughtful guy, and. Um, Stuart came back at half time, white as a sheet, to say that um, you know it was bad. It wasn't what we thought. It was actually it was a serious injury and could be ACL and might need an operation. And this is suddenly a huge problem. And we we all met in Nottinghamshire, beginning of the following week. There was a club away day for Stuart and Daniel, and the board came and had an afternoon meeting and then dinner in the evening. And at that time, we didn't know what the Madison prognosis was going to be. Um, it was slightly better that day, but still, it wasn't definite he would have to have an operation. Um, but if, if, if he had an operation, then that was going to be it for that transfer window. And even if there was no operation, if he was out for the pre-season, it's going to be very hard to do this deal. And suddenly, you know, in order to keep the club solvent, to manage to pay the wage bill of the players and the staff, given our income, you know, we we had to sit down that afternoon and um, go through the players that we would we would need to put on the market that summer, knowing if you do it in that circumstance, this this is not good financial trading because that's not when you want to sell players when people know that you um, need the money. Whereas Stuart had been very skilled at communicating that we didn't need to sell Madison if we couldn't get the right price, and Daniel was there for that conversation. With um, with all of us, and so he knew in detail the consequences of Madison not going, and I think that that is that tells you how the how seriously the board took took its job, the way in which the board talked about these kind of things, and the kind of partnership that um, we and Stuart had with the uh, the uh, the manager, and so then a few days later the news came through that um, that it was looking better. But even so, I mean, the deal Stuart managed to do to move Madison to Leicester at that point, I mean, was hugely important. And it goes back to my point from earlier. You only have, um, make three or four big decisions in a in a year, a club like ours, on the financial side. And if you get that wrong, if we couldn't have made that decision to move Madison or and, and hadn't got that price, then... You know, I, I think I think if Madison had been injured that day, there's no chance we would have been. Um, oh, no, I'm not going to say no chance. It would have been very hard for us to have been promoted the following season because I think what we'd have had to have done into the squad 
over the course of that 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 summer would have been very very hard indeed so um it was a it was a great relief and daniel understood that fully and you, you talk about you know the the subsequent season resulting in promotion it's something that we'd really like to get your take on because ultimately that season the 2018-19 um you know you were involved in part um you know and you, you kind of departed in the december yeah. how bittersweet was it for you that that you departed from from the club that you love and that actually that season was the season where it all came together and it resulted in that wonderful promotion but then you weren't there at the end when actually you know we kind of alluded to it earlier some of that that structure and that setup was was your brainchild or you know your your good research in terms of speaking to the likes of Damon Camoli to to enact the change that Norwich City needed at that time I mean you know I've been I've been a supporter of Norwich City all of my life, and I will be all of my life, as will be my my kids and my nephews and nieces and my grandparents before. So you don't leave. Um, it's just that your, your, your role changes. So I've been to um, you know to pretty much every game where we've been allowed to in the last two years since I stopped being the the, the chair. But just I've been in the stands. I'm vice president. I go in the director's box every now and then. It's I think my son is. Um, nephew are pretty relieved to be able to get their shirts back on and scream uh, at the referee like 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 everybody else and so it's been um and and it's been nice to get back and do that as well i i had come out of politics i get asked to be the non-executive director of my football club and within a couple of weeks suddenly i become the chair of this complex business i said to delia and michael you know i'll, I'll do it um, but I can only do it for it for you know I, I promise to do it for a year while we think who else can be um, come in and be the chair and you know, even outside the period when I was there doing the recruitment um, you know, it was still you know a, a quarter of my time um, being, being the chair of the football club when I was um, you know uh, having to do doing do, do, uh, other jobs paid jobs as well and. I said halfway through to Delia and Michael, you know, do you, um, after Stuart came in, that, uh, you know, we should think about the right time for me um, to move on. And that wasn't what they wanted. And I ended up doing three years rather than the one I uh, suggested. And so once, um, once we got to the beginning of that season and Daniel was embedded and we were on a roll and the club was going to make other changes with the executive committee um, being being set up, um, and you know, things were going to change. That was a natural time. I said to Michael and Delia in the September, "I think it's this is the natural time now for me to step back as chair." And they said, "Would you stay and do the um, the AGM?" So I then stayed on as a chair all the way through to um, to the end of November. I did three AGMs and um, and. And, and then stood aside, and I've st- stood back since then and watched this um, brilliant rest of the season. And then, you know, huge challenges of our Premier League uh, season. And then to see um, Daniel and the team doing so brilliantly this, this season, and I feel kind of, you know, I feel the collective pride of Norwich City in these achievements. And I'm, I'm proud to have played a part, um, a small part, in helping manage that transition from the Norwich City of 2015-16 to what we are now. And um, I think the football club is, is stronger, better run. The academy is 
top-notch supporters are absolutely part of um, everything in the football club. Our recruitment is excellent. And um, I was part with the board of helping Delia and Michael and Stuart and Daniel do that. So um, no regrets, uh, no, no, no sadness, kind of jubilance, really. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I'm hugely proud to still be part of the football club. Good. I mean, I, I think and I'd, I'd want to say thank you to you, Ed, because ultimately you did. I think you're downplaying the part that you played in it. But I guess you know, I reflected on it when, when we knew that you were coming on. And I just thought, actually, you were such a big part of of that season and, and what transpired prior to that season and everything that made that season, the 2018-19 season, great. But you weren't there at the end of it. So I was just really keen to um, to know how you felt about it. And I was and I was um, and I was in Wembley um, before all of that happened um, when I wasn't part of it either. But I don't think I've ever felt out. You know, we all, we, everybody plays their role, whether it's Danny Casey um, brilliantly selling the tickets or um, the whole catering team or the, the, um, all of the um, guys who man the gates on, a, on a, a Saturday and the fans who come and cheer, everybody plays their part and your role changes. And um, if you are... In football, there's always going to be hard guns. There's players who come in on a three-year contract and then they move for the money. And there's managers who move, you know, um, look at um, the latest um, manager um, at West Ham, somebody who I know the club talked to years ago, Sam Allardyce, as a possible manager and decided not to, and that was probably a good call as well. But um, I've never been part of, you know, a hard gun I've never been part of any other club. I'm just Norwich City, and it's a huge privilege for me to have had three years where I was chairman of my football team, but it's still my football team. And everything they do on the pitch, I feel proud of and um, pleased to be part of the history in a very small way. I can't believe, I can't believe we've not managed to reminisce about the 1970s. What about Billy Steele, Ted Ted McDougall, Colin Suggett? Well, who's your? Who were your big? Who were your big heroes in 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 the seventies? Then, like you mentioned, uh, McDougall there. Oh no, my my, my biggest um, hero by far was Ted McDougall, who was who was brilliant in the six yard box. I'm not sure he was always so brilliant everywhere else, but the guy could score goals, and I wanted to be Ted McDougall. And um, the, the Ted McDougall Phil Boyer partnership, but you know, my 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 kind of most emotionally um, important team to me is that mid-70s team. I was there when we beat Queen's Park Rangers uh, and stopped them winning the Division 1 in, in 1976. Um, it was the first time I ever went to a game and then could go home and see the same game on Match of the Day because we hardly ever saw football on TV back then. Kevin Keelan, Mel Machin, Duncan Forbes, Colin Suggett, Ray Powell... I mean, the um, um, Graham Padden era as well. Era as well. Graham Padden, yeah, yeah. He, he, um, yeah, he, he was Kevin Keelan esque with his bouffant hairstyle. <laughs> but um, yeah, Graham Padden. That's that's what you know. Those were the days where you had yellow socks and a green shorts and a yellow shirt, and there was no. I don't think they've even quite got into um, into any of the into the kind of Umbro style trimmings, which were to come later. But you know, Kevin Bond came in. When John Bond came up from Bournemouth, so uh, you know that that was Ted McDougall, who I always wanted to um, to be. When I had to pick my um, 
my top 11 team for the Supporters Trust. Ted, I put Ted McDougall with Dan Huckabee and Grant Hole playing off him. But you always want Ted McDougall at the centre. It's time for the Long Come Norwich quiz. Ed, you've got one minute to answer six questions. Three of them are about Norwich City-ish and three of them are about football-ish. Um, they are exactly the same questions for, for each each player um, in terms of making it as fair as possible. You've got questions around referees, Barry Butler winners and caretaker managers this week. So, Ed, your minute starts now. Who was the first African to win the Barry Butler Player of the Season award? Uh, Basson. Correct. What was the former name of Stokes Bet 365 Stadium? Um, Britannia. Correct. Which current Premier League referee was born in 1968 on the Wirral and has refed over 500 matches? Um, I have no idea. Uh, what squad number is Xavi Quintia? Um, I'm going to guess 33. Incorrect. Who was the last Scottish European Cup scorer for Rangers the first, the last U- Scottish European Cup top scorer the last European Cup as in the top scorer in the whole European Cup yeah in the whole of the whole of the competition uh, he played for Rangers and he was Scottish uh, correct which former Norwich defender was the caretaker manager between Brian Gunn and Paul Lambert Time. time's up oh yeah oh. But you, you delayed halfway through Okay, go on then. If you give if you give me an answer promptly, then I'll give it to you. Um, the oh God, I can actually I can see him. I didn't delay that long. It's Ian Butterworth is the guy that you're that you're Ian after. Um, you did ever so well. Uh, you, you, got, well. You, you got Britannia. You got Seb Basong. Um, uh, can Ali you think McCoy's. of the, yeah, Guy McCoy? Can you think of the referee, John? What was the by the way? What was it? What's the Kintia number? Oh, it's number. John, do you know it? No, no idea. 16. It's tricky because he's not played 16. for a while. Yes. A bit um, of a bonkers sorry, one. what was the referee sure. question? I wasn't really listening on that one. Ref, referee, 1968, on the Wirral. Nah, Keith Hackett. No, no, no. He, he made a big deal of uh, uh, following Tranmere on their recent playoff run. Oh, Mike Dean. Mike Dean, that's Mike right. Dean. I've actually played. He, he actually gave me a penalty. Nice. That's, that's a claim to fame. Well, they, I mean, they, they, claimed, they, they claimed I died, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> there was no VAR in, in those days, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so you've got one, two, three. Uh, you've got four. Four out of six is very, no, very I'm strong. Never no, you've got, sorry, no, you've got three. Sorry, I just gave you Mike Dean. No, you've got three out of six, but three is very strong. Four. Uh, John, you can time yourself. You need right, four, to, four to win, three to go to a tiebreaker. Your time, John, starts now. What is the current name of Bolton's formerly Reebok Stadium? Uh, Macron. Incorrect. Who was the winner of the Barry Butler Trophy the years the fans hijacked it and voted for Carlo Nash? Oh, God. Um, Pass. Which current Premier League referee was born in 1985 in Northumberland and has sent off Buffon? Um, Oliver. Correct. What squad number is Barley Mumba this season? 32. 
know. Who was the previous Scottish European Cup top scorer before Ali McCoist played for Liverpool? Um, Graham Souness? No. Played for Liverpool? Correct. No. no. Correct. <laughs> it was. Uh, who was Worthy's first team coach uh, that then did one game in charge as a caretaker? Doug Livermore. Incorrect. Um, what is the name of Bolton's formerly known as Reebok Stadium? University of Bolton Stadium. Is Correct. It? Who was the winner of the Barry Butler Trophy when uh, they all hijacked it and tried to get it to be Carlo Nash? Mm, Robert Snodgrass. Correct. Uh, and what squad number is Barley Mumba this season? 31. No. Uh, Time. What was worth... Okay, so you've, you've got three out of six as well. Oh, tie break. Oh, my God. Oh, I see. So he, he gets to have a second go, does he? Hang well, on. He's gave you about another 20 see. seconds, Ed. I go back round to the start again. I go back round to the start. Okay, so uh, Barley Mumford plays plays in number twenty six for about the the, the twenty five minutes that he's actually played. Um, And uh, yes, so that the uh, in that year, do I win then? No, 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 tiebreaker. You both got three. Surely away goals. No, no, there's a tiebreaker. There's a tiebreaker. You are very competitive, Ed. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, um, the the, just a a point on the. I I couldn't believe it was Graham Souness either. So I checked it, and he actually uh, was joint with six goals with Terry McDermott. They were they 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 were they were the most that that season. Um, So Martin Hunter was Worthy's first team coach, and he did one game in charge as caretaker. And then he applied for the job, but lost out to Peter Grant. What a Mm. what a signing he was as manager who came from West Ham. Um, right, okay, so now's your time to shine. Mm. Um, you, by the way, I mean, John, we could just decide. Just share the points. No, no. I mean, does, does no. I always have to be a winner? Oh, there's always a winner. There's a, there's, oh, a, right. there's a scoreboard on the website. Look, you can, look, so after this, Ed, you can go to alongcomenorridge.com and you can see how you've yeah. fared against other, okay. other greats of the football club. Okay, yeah. so uh, I'm going to ask you for a number, an exact number, please, Ed, and then I'm going to ask you for an exact number, please, John. The tiebreaker this week. What is the capacity, according to me googling it, of the University of Bolton Stadium? You're asking me first. Yes, it was completed in 1997, replacing the club's old ground, Burnden Park, formerly known as Reebok. <laughs> and the Macron. Um, I'm going to say 29,000. That's a very, very good guess. And what about you, John? I was going to say 29, genuinely. Um... Can I say? It's never been full when I've been, I've got to say. No, I've only been twice, <laughs> no. but it, neither I've time I've been once full. there. It's a long I've way, been, Bolton. That is a long, long way. All right. Given that Ed was so competitive, I'm going to also be competitive, and I'm going to go for 28,999. Unfortunately, um, Ed's got it. It's 29,000 oh. dead on if you Google it. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly right. Yes, I do feel How I do right feel like... That? Uh, well, by clearly going to University of Bolton Stadium enough times to uh, to have memorised it. <laughs> it's uh, one of right. the things you do when you're there. You look around the ground and think, how does it feel compared to Carrow Road? So I quite often look up um, the the the, um, the numbers just to kind of check it out. That's not one of the nice ones. Yes, thank you so much for your time, Ed. Really, really appreciated it. Um, it, it was nice to have a good chat. It was nice to cover so so much of your time um, in your various different guises at, at Carrow Road. Uh, John, I also acknowledge that you exist. Cheers, mate. Um, and dear listener, thank you for spending your time with us in your ears. Uh, we truly hope you have as brilliant a Christmas as you can, bearing in mind how awful 2020 has been and it continues to throw awful stuff at us we'll be back with another something special um, to see off this apocalyptically bad year uh, with a smile next week uh, some of our favourites are joining us for a proper muck about 
Uh, in the meantime, enjoy Watford and QPR. Merry Christmas from me and John. And mind how you go. <laughs>